This is Thinking Freely with the ACLU of Maryland, the show that talks about what's happening politically in Maryland from the courts to the streets. I'm your host, Amber Taylor. Maryland students have a right to a high-quality public education guaranteed by Article 8 of the Maryland State Constitution. One of the ways students get a high-quality public education is through funding. But for generations, Maryland, one of the wealthiest states in the nation, has underfunded its public education system. Decades of underfunding have decreased opportunities for thousands of students and left far too many schools in horrendous condition. Underfunding from the state has deeply impacted students from families with low income and black and brown children. In 1994, the ACLU of Maryland brought forth the Bradford versus Maryland State Board of Education lawsuit on behalf of Baltimore City students and parents to defend their public education rights. As a result, Baltimore City schools did receive increased state funding from the Bradford Consent Decree and subsequent Thornton Education Funding Formula. But since the 2008 recession, Maryland stopped adjusting for inflation in the previous education funding formula. This has led to millions in lost funds every year for students in low-wealth districts like Baltimore City. Over time, students in Baltimore City, Prince George's County, and counties on the Eastern Shore have gone without billions of dollars in education funding. This is a Maryland constitutional violation, and we need systemic investment to address it. Right now, for the first time in 17 years, Maryland has the opportunity to rewrite the education funding formula with the current commission to accomplish large-scale improvements to learning conditions for students. But to truly make a difference, our state must make intentional investments to directly fix racial and wealth inequities. For today's discussion, we are joined by Jana Parker, a former educator and public education advocate, and Kimberly Humphrey, the Public Policy Counsel for the ACLU of Maryland. We'll talk about what it will take to fully fund education across Maryland. How do we ensure that the state's new funding formula being developed by the Kerwin Commission makes real gains for racial and wealth equity, and how you can get involved? Ms. Parker, Kim, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yes. Great. So, you know, I wanted to kick off the conversation with you, Parker. wanted to talk about, you know, Maryland is one of the wealthiest states in the nation. Why are schools so underfunded? So when you, like, when you have a statement like Maryland is one of the wealthiest states in America, you have to kind of break that down. So, like, it is the wealthiest state specific to districts. You know, there are certain districts that bring in way more money in, in, the, in the huge calculation for the state than other districts. So we have a lot of other areas within Maryland that are, um, you know, in, in areas of poverty. Right. So I think that plays into the fact where our school systems are underfunded based on areas of poverty and certain districts. So as a whole, our school system is underfunded. But then when you start breaking it down by different counties, you're like, oh, well, why does that county have this, 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 and this? And that county has this, 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 and this. And then this county is like, hey, can I get, can I get like two more books? You know, it's, it's that sort of thing that we have going on here. So yes, holistically, Maryland underfunds their educational practices. Um, but it does kind of, when you dig a little bit deeper into the numbers and you look at the educational systems within the counties, you can kind of see a difference as it relates to that wealth gap. 
Um, so I think that's one of the reasons and, and also priorities. And, you know, to make sure that we have, you know, education as a real priority. I know that, you know, the we've been engaged in a very long fight with the current commission. Some of our listeners may know what the current commission is and some of them don't. Kim, can you just explain what is the current commission? Absolutely. So I also just want to say, let's think of it as a long partnership and not a fight, right? I like to think that they want to do the right thing. Um, and so I'll just preface my comments with that. The Kerwin Commission is the formal body, about 25 members, that is charged with revisiting the funding formula, uh, the system of uh, formulas that decides how each district is funded, basically. We have a pretty complex system. So this has been a long process. It started about three years ago formally with the commission. But even prior to that, the state had uh, independent consultants working on this uh, that started back in 2014. So, you know, the ECLU has been deeply involved and invested. And um, we're excited about what the, the Kerwin recommendations will bring. No, and, and I think this is an exciting time. But, you know, Parker, when you were an educator in Prince mm-hmm. County, you know, did you feel like the state was fully funding your, edu- you know, your students' education? No, uh, no. Um, <laughs> you know, like like I referenced before, um, when you have counties that are bringing in more money, the money that they give other counties based on the formula is 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 not equitable in relation to what that county needs, right? Um, there's like this, you know, there's barrier, there's this gap, right? So we have a high English language, English as a second language learners, ESOL. Um, we have a high special education population. Um, and so, and then we have high, in certain areas, we have high rates of poverty, right? So you have those three things and it just kind of creates this maelstorm of um, need in relation to the public education system, education system in Prince George's County. Now, I want to go on record. That's not to say that Prince George's County as a school system is not doing its best to provide these things for our students. But on the state level, there, is, there should be more funding um, specific to the, the needs within Prince George's County as the students. That's just to say that these are students just like any other students that need um, you know, to have the adequate and appropriate funding so that they can reach their educational goals. And I don't feel like that was happening on the state level in relation to bringing that funding back to Prince George's County. I know recently, uh, within this last legislative session, our county officials were like, we brought more money back home to Prince, George, and that, to Prince George's County, and that's great, but there needs to be more. Um, and so when I was an educator, you know, there were a lot of different things that I was just kind of like, no, this is, this is not fully, even when you fully investing in our students, even when you look at the facilities, right? Prince George's County had a one- has a one billion dollar you know backlog within relation to facilities and part of that is you know should be coming from state funding just to have gone almost 20 30 40 50 years without new buildings in a whole community that has a growing esau population a growing um, special education population and needs of high poverty and you just didn't even provide new buildings you know that's an environmental concern because now you have 40 50 year old buildings that are servicing children in the most vulnerable time of them growing up. So no, 
Uh, the short answer is no, Marilyn, you didn't. Marilyn has this constitutional, you know, uh, statute to provide every child with a quality education, regardless of where they live and how much they make and what they look like. Like the craziest thing to me about this whole thing is that, you know, if, if I break a law, I'm going to court to fight the law that I broke, you know, for my freedom. Marilyn is breaking its own laws and then saying like, oh, what? Okay. So, and it's just like, no, like you, you are held to the same standard that you are trying to hold me to. And and I just want to add a little bit more to that. Cause mm-hmm. when, when we talk about the fact that we do have school districts that are struggling, it's important to say they are doing the best that they can, but we don't want districts having to struggle and do magic tricks to do the most with less. That's not what our goal should be. That should be unacceptable, um, especially in the wealthiest state in the nation. We do have a constitutional mandate. We have adequacy targets, and we want to make sure that the decisions that they're making meet those targets and meet our constitutional standard. When it comes to the school facilities, is one like the big one of the big issues um, facing underfunded communities. Can, can you just talk to me, like, how is, how is the current commissioners um, addressing school facilities in the new funding formula? So um, that issue uh, is another. None of these things are simple, right? Let's, let's remember that these are just mammoth tasks. Everything has changed drastically within our country, and we have to make sure that our schools are keeping up as far as the space that's provided for learning, what is needed to educate children in the digital age. With facilities, the Kerwin Commission is taking on a piece of that that is covered through the operating budget that has to do with uh, just building maintenance and those other costs. A lot of the, um, the action, I guess, that we'll see during the legislative session with regards to facilities will happen through a separate bill. And so there's been a separate commission, the NOT Commission, that is really getting into the details of uh, being able to categorize uh, what level of uh, disrepair, unfortunately, or how good some buildings are and um, really putting that in order and determining, you know, what funding we're going to provide. But we do expect to see some of that happening, just not all through the current commission. And, you know, getting back to the little bit back to the current commissioners, um, Parker, do you feel like the commissioners are really like incorporating the community's, you know, feedback, concerns? And when I say community, I really do mean like the parents, the students, the educators, the everyone who is a part of the school community. No. So, <laughs> all right. Well, so so, and I'm gonna I want to give because I know there might be some pushback from the commissioners. So I'm gonna go back to like when it started. Like right. So like three years ago, the commission was 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 birthed, and like they came up with these recommendations and these policies, and and they they came up with it, you know, based on their expertise. And then they said to the community, "We're gonna have listening sessions. Here's what we said. What do you think?" The community came out in droves. You know, I was I was there. They came out in droves. This is what we think. This we have a problem with this. We have a problem with that. We have a problem with this. 
and it was almost like you know when you were in those in those uh spaces it was almost like them the community was talking to a wall you know people were listening People were looking engaged, but they weren't actively engaged. So now we're here in year three. They released an interim report in January. And again, now we're coming back with these blueprint. We're having these these open uh, town halls, these listening sessions that explain it, right? That explains it, but it doesn't provide, it doesn't give the, uh, the, the, the room for feedback doesn't give the room for, oh, this is what I don't like. This is what I do like. This is what I, and then the interim report was like 300, 400 pages. I read it, but I mean, like, you know, it was just so much. And there were so many different policies that you have to break down for someone to give their feedback, right? And so I, I don't think that the commission has done a good job getting feed, getting A, getting the feedback, and then B, once they got the feedback, incorporating it into the different policies and procedures that they want to do for the current commission. So I don't think things a two-part thing, and I don't think that they've done a good job. And to that end, as far as the actual commission, they were actually supposed to have a meeting um, within while the funding work group was um, was still convening, and they canceled that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the interim report came out um, in January earlier this year. Uh, fast forward, you know, almost the end of the year, and we had our first listening session a few days ago. And at this stage, we, you know, there are signals that it's basically done. Um, and that is why we will be strong during the session um, and early on. Because while we have an opportunity to get this right, uh, we want to make sure that we take that. And since we didn't have as much of that opportunity as we would have hoped that we would have had, um, we will be showing up in January. I think the the part that always gets me is that, you know, we're talking about billions of dollars. And it's affecting, you know, hundreds of thousands of students across the state and will affect us for generations. It's not like it's a one and done thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's why I think we're, it's so important for us to talk about equity. Here at the ACLU of Maryland, we think that equity is really about prioritizing what somebody needs mm-hmm. um, and making sure that those needs go addressed and wanting to focus on that rather than equality, which is just giving everyone the exact same, regardless of whether or not somebody needs more or somebody needs less. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, Kim, can you talk to me about why the ACLU is focused so much on wealth equity um, as it relates to our work and why we're fighting so hard for it? So uh, wealth equity for us, you know, it means that jurisdictions, it's a balancing act, right? So that the principle is that if you have less at your local level, the state fills in the gap, Right. So everyone knows there there are limited resources. And so based on the court's understanding of what the Constitution promises, they told the state, you have this duty and you will balance that with what the locals can pay. So that just means that while um, you can kind of say it's essentially the, the idea, if possible, would be a 50-50 split. That's not going to be the case if a district has very low um, opportunities for revenue raising because of uh, high poverty at their local level or um, not a lot of uh, 
property taxes that they could bring in. Um, and then the other side of that is adequacy. So when you think about wealth equity and adequacy, it's kind of like a seesaw maybe. <laughs> um, and so you want, you want them balanced. It just means that the state is providing enough resources so that uh, the students can actually meet state standards. So this balance is critical. We know where the gaps are. We know that um, three jurisdictions are the most underfunded. That's Caroline County, Prince George's County, and Baltimore City. We also know that 45% of students of color across the state, 45% of those students are educated in those three districts. So that is why wealth equity is so critical to the work that we're doing. We want to make sure that the Constitution actually means something to everyone. And that, that means that, okay, this area, I, I have to give you, you know, if everybody has to get a dollar, right? If this area only has 10 cents, I have to give you 90. If this area has 90, look, you can only get 10 because I just got to get to the dollar. And what Maryland does a lot of times is Maryland doesn't want to get to the dollar in areas that have, again, high concentrations of poverty or and slash or students of color. You know, like we don't want to get to the dollar. I believe you cannot manage your way out of under investment. That's facts. Yeah. And, and that's that's something that we all need to pay close attention to when we talk about the realities of what's happening. And that's why we need to make sure that Kerwin does go through and that it goes through with actually um, the adequate resources to make sure that we can provide the services that we need. We don't want to be here 20 years from now having the same conversation. That would be absolutely ridiculous. I'm not here for it. I don't think any of us want to do that. So let's get this right. You see this narrative that it's a mismanagement on the district level, right? You see this narrative. Oh, what is Baltimore City doing with the millions of dollars? Oh, what is Prince George's County doing with the millions of dollars? Oh, what is Carroll County doing with these millions? It's this narrative that wants to be pushed. But when you start digging a little deeper and you see it's not it's not a it's not an issue of mismanagement on the district levels. It's, it's an issue of Maryland as a whole underfunding these districts, right? And these districts trying to manage the 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 funds that they're given, right? You might hear some commissioners uh, talk about the concentrated poverty grants, and this is a very um, impactful change. So, you know, just for everyone's benefit, the funding formula is made up of a foundation. That, that goes to the quote-unquote standard or normal school that doesn't have as many needs. So there's a foundation base, that's what we call it. And then there are three weights based on current law. So you have your weight for the ESOL population, which we discussed a little bit earlier. You have your weights for the low income or the uh, free and reduced meal students. Um, and you have a weight for students with disabilities. That, that's under current law. We have recognized that these different categories have additional needs. Now, um, in, in a huge part to the great advocacy of the ACLU and others, um, but we have really led the charge, we, we push for concentrated poverty to be considered and a part of a formula 
we didn't know how it would end up being incorporated, but because when you, when, when you know that you have a certain level of, um, trauma, um, it is a number of poverty generally, when you have the overlap of all of these issues in a school, it really, uh, puts a strain on the resources that are generally coming in. So we wanted to account for that. So I say that, and I, I want to highlight that the commission has included the concentrated poverty grant because oftentimes that is focused on as to say, um, because we've done this, we have covered racial equity. We've, we've covered wealth equity. But see, that concentrated poverty grant is only one portion, right? And it is important. It, it, it provides the, it has uh, funded essentially the, Community schools, they've decided that concentrated poverty grants essentially allow for a framework for community schools in any, uh, any district across the state that where the school, the actual school level funding, um, has 55% of farms. So, um, I just wanted to flag that though, because that, that funding is really supposed to build on the other pieces of the formula. And right now we're seeing cuts from the other pieces of the formula. So we know that it will, unfortunately, I, I guess I should say, we are still waiting for a decision that makes it clear that we will meet adequacy once we see the full recommendations where we see what services are provided to those three weights. And we can say, yes, those are the right services to meet adequacy, to cover equity, and the concentrated poverty grants will bolster those services. And actually, so when it comes to the current commission, like what are some of the programs and some of the services that are going to be impacted by that? Can you speak to that a bit, Parker? So there are a couple of different programs. Um, they definitely want to increase uh, pre-K mm -hmm. to three-year-olds, and, and, and they want to partner with duty centers and, and, and daycare centers within the areas of the districts to provide them with all the resources to be able to have the universal pre-K, all right? And then there is the CTE program, the College Technology Education Program. Um, those, those will be effective. They have specific policies and weights and monies attached to that. Um, I, I want to say to Kim's point, though, these educational programs that will be impacted, we want to make sure that they're impacted appropriately and correctly. You know, that they're impacted in the manners that you're not just saying, oh, we're going to expand um, universal pre-K and we're going to work with the Judy Centers. And then kind of down the line, the way that it's put together, the Judy Centers aren't actually supported, right? Well, the CTE program is is done in a way that the college and career ready and the CTE program are so diverse that it creates like this two-tier caste system of education within Maryland. So it's not that that anyone has an issue with the CTE program. No one has an issue with that. The issue is, are there adequate supports within these educational programs to ensure that those going through them are not like this second tier of education? The, um, the current work is in five buckets. So there's early education. There's uh, the career technology education, the CTE, which they've, they've called it college and career ready. Um, then we have the... They looked, they looked at the more resources for underserved students, and then they, uh, they looked at accountability. And then the, um, basically, it's centered around higher quality teachers and leaders. 
by having a set of recommendations that establishes a new standard for uh, teachers and really elevates what's happening in the teacher prep programs. So with all of those, we do have some concerns that, um, you know, will it do what it, what we say it's going to do without unintended consequences, um, as uh, Parker was pointing out with the two-tier systems. But we also want to make sure that the funding is in the right place. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about, that's another reason why when we talk about wealth equity and we talk about the local share breakdown and when we talk about adequacy, we want to make sure that those programs that were recommended for the um, students that aren't getting what they need, that we see funding going to the base and that we see funding going to these specific categories. That is a very, very big concern at this juncture because right now, and this is another reason why at this point, um, I'm really excited about the direction and the Kerwin commissioners are questioning that and they want to get that right. They want to be able to break down those services, tie it to the funding and, you know, be able to track that. And and that's the last piece, the accountability piece. Um, and that's the part that is really the most critical if we want this to do what we say what we say it does. Um, and that's the work. That's a lot of the work that we have that's coming up. And, you know, when this education, this new education funding formula passes, which we hope, you know, it's going to be, you know, this next session. Um, how long is this all going to take before it gets down to the districts and the districts can actually utilize this new funding? Um, and what is the length of time you know, for the rollout process? So it's a 10-year phase-in, um, and we we wanted it to be shorter. That uh, We are happy right now with 10 years, and we do not want to see that extended out. Um, a big part of that, though, will also be our priority. And when we talk about equity, you know, equity isn't equal. Everyone doesn't need the same thing. We know that based on data. We're talking about education. We're talking about best practices. So we want to make sure that in that process of the 10-year rollout, that in the first few years, we are really paying attention to and um, funding up front those that have been the most underserved. And so, you know, we we are happy and we support a focus on universal pre-K, essentially, going in that direction. But we also want to make sure that uh, low-income three-year-olds have high-quality programs and that we prioritize that as a state. Just one example. But Kim, you know, when it comes to parents, um, particularly those who live in in these, you know, wealthier districts like Montgomery County, um, they often hear when they, you know, hear terms like wealth equity and like this, you know, equitable funding formula, that that just means that their students are going to get less funding um, and that means that, you know, their students are going to be lesser off, particularly for those families who, you know, whose students attend schools and that are underfunded within those wealthier districts. What do you say to their concerns um, when, when they, you know, when it comes to like education um, equity? Every parent should be excited about this opportunity. This is a plan that benefits everyone. And let me tell you why. We have adequacy targets. So the process makes sure that every student gets what they need. So this is not about taking from one or, you know, and giving to the other. This is about putting everyone on a level playing field, as uh, Parker said earlier. Um, so there's really, there, that's just really, an, an, uh, it's just not something that is a threat, right? We're going to make sure that every child is um, 
prepared for what they need. And the breakdown, basically, of the state and local share, it handles that. Um, it, it makes sure that we are meeting the adequacy target. And that really, the focus is on the standard of education in every district. The state is really enforcing that standard. And we should, as parents, you know, no, I don't think any parent wants to see a child in a school that doesn't have heat, a school that where they don't have the books, you know. And so this is something that we can all get together on. We can be united on elevating um, Maryland's education and elevating the state as a whole. I would be concerned about anyone who you're in a district. And again, I'm going to use the analogy of getting to a dollar, right? I would be concerned about anyone who your district has 80 cents. Your district has 90 cents, right? And the other district has 60. And we're all trying to get to the dollar. So it's not like you're going to get 40 cents in addition to your 80. You're going to get this 20 cents. But you're so angry about this other district trying to get their 40 to get up to a dollar. I would be concerned about the thought process behind people who think like that, who think that, you know, it's okay for these other areas to be underfunded consistently, generationally, right? While you just live high on the hog and you, 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 you only need, you only need 20%. And that's all you're going to get from the state anyway. But you're having these issues with this area that needs 40. Like, where, where are you at? You know, where, where are your, where, where is your head at, you know? And the reality is that um, based on the re- recommendation as it stands, um, every district is going to get what they need. Some will get more than what they need. That That but is the reality of where we are really right now. Be concerned with, and I think they are. I don't think any parent wants to see the generations, generational disinvestment continue. I don't think any parent would want to see neglect of some districts over others. I I just don't, I believe that that is not where we are as a state and that with the Kerwin plan, we are moving in a different direction. It's moving. I I share you during that belief. Um, But in terms of black and brown students um, whose families live in the the middle class um, and don't necessarily go to, you know, who live, live in concentrated poverty, how will this formula benefit those set of students? Okay, the the formula benefits every student. Again, every student will benefit um, with not just funding, but remember, the dollars are going to programs. They're going to um, increase the number of teachers. They're going to increase the number of black and brown teachers. That is something that anyone living in any jurisdiction can celebrate because their children will certainly have an impact. Um, any student, no matter their background, benefits from seeing uh, diverse teachers. But, you know, we do know that the studies show that for uh, students of color, that contributes to a higher rate of graduation. So, you know, it, it, even if our for our middle class, black and brown families, you do you do see something here and, and wealth equity will benefit you. In addition, the um, community schools are you know, every district is impacted by uh, community schools and these wraparound services. And the idea is that where you have a high concentration of poverty, 
um, in a school that impacts all of the students. So by, you know, having community schools, all of the students benefit. That's just to name a few, but we, you know, we all benefit from a stronger, um, a stronger future for our, our children and for the state. Um, Parker, yes. you know, why should our listeners be, um, you know, we talked a lot about like kind of like the, the bad side of underfunding our, um, underfunding our education programs and right. education um, in our schools. Why should our listeners like be excited about, you know, this new opportunity uh, for in, within the current commission? You know, the, like you should be excited because there is this huge opportunity, right? There's this huge opportunity to uh, essentially reimagine, reinvest, and reinvigorate, right? Uh, Maryland education on this higher level, this higher platform, excuse me, that will positively affect the entire state of Maryland, every student, every child, regardless of where they live, what they look like, and the income of their family, right? So, like, that should be exciting. Um, You know, excuse me, we are Maryland. Like, we are Marylanders. You know, it doesn't matter if you are up there on the top part near Pennsylvania or down on the bottom in Charles County, St. Anne's County or wherever may have you, Anne Arundel, Prince George's, Baltimore City, you know, Hartford. We are Maryland, period. So we should all be excited that this is about to change education throughout the state holistically to benefit our state on so many different levels. Uh, Parker, yes. What can people do to support you and your work, and you know, and the work that you do in at Prince George's County? Well, what you can do, what I always encourage Prince George's County parents to do, is to be informed, be present, and to be engaged. And so, part of that is taking the current commission and actually reading through it, looking at it, actually, you know, asking questions. Hey, I don't understand this policy. I don't understand what this means. I don't understand what that means. You can reach out to me. Uh, I'm Jana, J-A-N-N-A, Parker on Facebook. But you can also um, email me at M-S-J-A-N-N-A-M-Parker, P-A-R-K-E-R, at gmail.com. If you have any questions, I'll do my best to answer them as well as put you in, like, you know, put you connect you with someone else who can answer the questions as well you can reach out to um uh pg Cavs, which is prince george's county advocates for a better school system you can reach out to pgcea which is our actual teachers union prince george's county educators association you can reach out to your school board members um we have nine elected and four appointed you can reach out to the appointed ones because you know they they don't have a district, so they should be free enough to answer the current commission questions. Dr. Alvin Thornton, who is our chair, is actually on the current commission, um, reaching out to them to ask questions if you are confused, and as well as reaching out to our delegates and our senators. Um, Alon- Delegate Alonja Washington, as the current commission is like his baby, so reaching out to him and having conversations with him, reaching out to your specific district. I mean, like, like, but reaching out to them and saying, hey, this is what I understand this to be. This is what I I think. This is what I support. And just keep pushing, 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 writing letters, showing up. You know, I know it's a lot, you know, but our session is very small. It's from January to like March, April, April. They're like the first, like the first week in April. So like, you know, kind of keeping that pressure on, um, reaching out to our senators. You know, I know we have Senator Joanne Benson, uh, J.J. Peters, uh, Paul Pinsky, um, 
Malcolm Augustine. Uh, my my senator is Melanie Griffin, and we also have I think Ovi Patterson. So like reaching out to all of the senators in Prince George's County and saying, hey. I support the current commission. I support these things within the current commission. So make sure that this, these things are in there. Like really working to understand the current commission and pushing the, the current commission with the appropriate funding and weight. And always like reach out to anyone if you have questions or concerns or anything like that. But keep pushing. Uh, Kim, what should people do to support this work, to support um, making sure that this um, education funding formula is equitable? People should um, go to our website, um, make sure that they're following um, the work that the, the ACLU is doing, and um, look for information about upcoming training opportunities and uh, different trips that we will be taking to Annapolis to make sure that legislators have an opportunity to hear from you. Um, some of our coalitions that we've been working very closely with, um, that includes um, the Marie Coalition, that's the Maryland Alliance for Race, Equity, and Education. And I know that they'll be ramping up. Um, the Montgomery County uh, Black and Brown Coalition is getting very engaged in the state level work, and they will be helping to um, helping us to define and uh, move forward the Black and Brown agenda for the state. So people should also write their representatives. Uh, talk to your state senator. Talk to your um, your your delegates. Make sure that they know that you support um, investing in our future through education. This is something that we can't put off any longer. Um, this process of review has been going on for five years now, and it's time to take action. So yes, we we are a great state. We are united um, in our beliefs and our goals, but we have work to do. We cannot afford to keep going in the direction that we've been going. And I would say, make sure that your representatives know that you support this transition, this change. There's a lot to do. There's a, there's a lot of opportunity and we can't wait to work with you. You know, I wanted to add that when our listeners reach out to their legislators, tell them that you support the current commission's recommendations, but also take it a step further by supporting the ACLU of Maryland's racial and wealth equity recommendations. But Kim and Parker, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Thinking Freely. This was a really great discussion. I learned a lot and I hope our listeners did as well. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Thinking Freely. If you like Thinking Freely, make sure to rate and subscribe to us from wherever you get your podcasts. This show was recorded at Tuck Media in Baltimore City and was recorded on Piscataway Native American land. I'm Amber Taylor, the host and producer of Thinking Freely. Till next time.